Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Rob has written dozens of books with titles like The Red Sea Rules, Then Sings My Soul, and Reclaiming the Lost Art of Biblical Meditation. Recently, Rob began a video teaching series entitled The 50 Final Events in World History, The Book of Revelation Demystified. You can use this self-paced video study for individual or group use. It includes downloadable visual aids for personal reference or for Bible teachers who want to teach this material to others. Visit robertjmorgan.com courses and use the coupon code podcast at checkout for a special listener's discount. And now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Well, greetings to you one and all. In last week's episode, I introduced the story behind the great hymn, How Firm a Foundation. Its story is bound up with the 400-year history of a single London church, and the original title of this hymn is Exceedingly Great and Precious Promises. This wonderful hymn, How Firm a Foundation, has seven stanzas in its original form. The first one states the theme of the song, and the remaining stanzas refer to some of the Bible's greatest promises. This series of podcasts will look into the great biblical passages that inspired this classic hymn. Before we get started, I want to mention a new book being released soon by my publisher, HarperCollins Christian Publishers. It's called, Then Sings My Soul, 52 Hymns That Inspire Joyous Worship. This book will give you a classic hymn to study, one for every week of the year, along with devotional ideas, suggested prayers, and biblical insights. It's available now for pre-order from your favorite bookstore or book distributor. And now for our study. If you have a Bible with you or you're in a position to read along with me, turn to the book of Hebrews near the end of the Bible and in chapter 6. For this study, I'm using the excellent Christian Standard Bible known as the CSB but you can follow in whatever version you have. Let's begin reading in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself, I will indeed bless you, and I will greatly multiply you. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and for them a confirming oath ends every dispute. Because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise, he guaranteed it with an oath so that through two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and steadfast. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner. Wow, what a passage. The key phrase in all of this is in verse 18. We who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement. Have you ever fled from anything? I have a friend who was once chased by a rabid dog, and he can tell you something about the urgency of fleeing. 
Well, when we receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are fleeing to Him for refuge, for safety, for security, for an eternally safe haven, for a hiding place from the despair of the world, and as a retreat for our souls. The Lord Jesus Christ is my refuge from sin and death and the grave and hell and from eternal despair. If you know him as your Savior, he's your refuge, and we flee to him and abide in him by faith in his unchanging word. And that's the message of the opening stanza of this hymn, How Firm a Foundation. I'll bet you know it. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said? You who unto Jesus for refuge have fled. I do not have the writing ability or the speaking skills or the exegetical skills or the oratorical ability or the vocabulary to fully convey the magnificence and the meaning of this paragraph from Hebrews. It is beyond the tongue of a Chrysostom or a Whitfield or a Spurgeon. But we can at least uncrate some of the words and look into them. The writer of Hebrews takes us back to Genesis chapter 12 and to the promises that God gave to Abraham. I'm currently working on a video course that I'm eager to teach and called Buck Hatch's Progress of Redemption. And when I teach this, I'll better be able to explain there the significance of the promises that God gave to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. For now, just let me say that these promises unleash everything that unfolds in the ensuing redemptive story of Scripture. God's plan of redemption truly begins in Genesis chapter 12. Let's go there, and I'll show you. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. It says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all of the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. In subsequent repetitions of that promise to Abraham, the Lord adds these words, I will bless you and your seed. All of the earth will be blessed through you and through your seed or through your descendant, who according to Galatians chapter 3 is Jesus Christ himself. So in this passage, God triggers his redemptive program for the human race. He selects one godly man, Abraham, and he gives Abraham a set of promises. And let me tell you, all of the other promises in the Bible can be traced back to these in Genesis 12. God promised to give Abraham a specially divinely chosen territory of land to bring from him enough descendants to create a great nation, to bless him and to bless the nation coming from him, and to make that nation great, and to bless those who bless Israel, and to curse those who curse Israel. And through Abraham and the nation that he would produce, 
and his seed or his descendant, Jesus Christ, the entire world will be blessed with the offer of total forgiveness and sure and certain eternal life. The whole gospel is contained in embryonic form in Genesis 12. And then in verse 7 of Genesis 12, the Lord repeated this promise again. He said, to your offspring, I will give this land. The Lord expanded on this promise again in Genesis chapter 13, beginning with verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, Look from the place where you are, look north and south, east and west, for I will give you and this offspring forever all of the land that you see. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust of the earth, then your offspring could be counted. Get up and walk around the land through its length and width, for I will give it to you. So all of that is in those opening chapters of Genesis. But then, in Genesis chapter 15, God repeated the promise again. Genesis 15 and verse 5 says that God took Abraham outside one night and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars if you're able to count them. Your offspring will be that numerous. And Abraham believed the Lord and God credited it to him as righteousness. So God gave Abraham a set of promises and he repeated them to him over and over and over. But now he did something more. Something so incredible, I hardly dare to show it to you. He confirmed that promise with an oath. Let's say that I promise to go with you on a trip. Let's say you don't want to promise alone, uh, you don't want to travel alone, and so you ask me to go with you to the beach in July. And I promise, I say, yes, I'll go with you. But then you say, well, swear to me that you'll go because I'm going to make the reservations. And I say, okay, I swear to you, I'll go God helping me. That would be a promise backed up by an oath. That is what Almighty God does here in chapter 15. Look at verses 7 and following. God also said to Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abraham said, Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? And now we have one of the most mysterious scenes in the Old Testament. Verse 9 says, The Lord said to him, Bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So Abraham brought all of these to him and cut them in half and laid the pieces opposite each other. But he did not cut the birds in half. So, in other words, Abraham made a pathway through the slaughtered remains of these offerings. He cut a cow in half and put one piece of it on one side and the other piece across from it. He did the same with the goat and with the ram. He killed the two birds and he put one on one side and the other on the other side. He created a pathway through slaughtered animals 
a pathway of blood, a pathway through death. And then Abraham spent the late afternoon chasing away the vultures that were circling in the sky and wanting to devour the bloody carcasses. Now look at verse 12. As the sun was setting, a deep sleep came over Abram, and suddenly great terror and darkness descended on him. Then the Lord spoke to Abraham and told him how his ancestors would go down to Egypt and how in Egypt they would become a great nation and then be enslaved and oppressed and then be delivered and returned to the land. Verse 17 says, When the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. And on that day God made a covenant, an oath with Abram, saying, I will give this land to your offspring, from the brook of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. God had given Abraham a promise, and now he confirmed it with an oath. Apparently, it was the custom in those days, when two people made a binding agreement, a covenant, or an oath, that they would kill an animal and walk between its part. It was a blood ritual. It's beyond our understanding that the eternal and almighty God would condescend to submit himself to a ritual like this. But that's what he did. Remember the promises he gave to Abraham contained in embryonic form God's entire plan of salvation. God was, in effect, promising to make Abraham's descendants into a channel of redemption that would bring a Messiah into the world who would provide the only answer in the universe for death. Those who flee to this Messiah Christ for refuge would find the only safety to be found in all of time or space. These promises to Abraham are the underpinnings for the entire message of salvation offered by the Bible. And now God was taking an oath, indicating that his promises would be fulfilled even if it required a blood sacrifice, a road of blood in the form of a touch and fire pot Almighty God traversed the trail of blood between the sacrifices. And remember, when God commanded sacrifices in the Old Testament, they always pointed to Jesus Christ. God made his promises to us, and they were validated by the trail of blood that led to Jesus Christ, which he followed during his Passion Week. So this is the passage, this is the story, to which the writer of Hebrews is referring. So let's go back and to the book of Hebrews and read the passage again with this background in mind, and I'll annotate it and make it as clear as I can. Look at Hebrews chapter 6, beginning with verse 13. God made a promise to Abraham about choosing him and using him to bring a Messiah and to bring blessings and redemption into the world. And since he... God had no one greater to swear by. He swore by himself, saying, I will indeed bless you, and I will greatly multiply you. 
He took an oath of blood. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise, and so have we. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and for them a confirming oath ends every dispute. So because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, the spoken promise and the bloody oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. The immutable, unchangeable Word of God is true. It is confirmed by His promise. It is guaranteed by His oath. I believe every part of it is true. His promises are true, and none of them will ever be forgotten or discarded or unfulfilled. The Word of God gives a strong encouragement, not just encouragement, but strong encouragement. It gives hope to those of us who have fled to Christ for refuge. Now, at the risk of overwhelming you, and me too for that matter, I want to show you another passage that comes to my mind, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. For every one of God's promises is Yes, in Christ. Therefore, through him, we also say, Amen, to the glory of God. In other words, God the Father has given us his very great and precious promises. Jesus has looked at every one and has agreed with them and has said yes to them, even though in doing so, he had to offer himself as a bloody sacrifice to guarantee them for us. And so we receive them and we say, Amen. What a tremendous verse. What a message. Do you see this pattern? I think it shows up in Genesis 12, 13, 14, and 15, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and in Hebrews chapter 6. God loves us. And he wants the world for us. He promises, and his promises are confirmed by blood, ultimately by the blood of Christ. And we have these promises in our hands whenever we open the Bible. And when we read one, we say, Amen. Yes, this one is for me. As I prepared the message, I read a column in a Georgia newspaper called The Macedonian. The column was by Carol Seabolt, and she talked about the global pandemic and said that when it began and she read about it, she felt a rising fear, and she worried about herself and her family, her children, her grandchildren. The world seemed to be spinning out of control, and the virus was heading straight to her state and to her town and to her street. She wrote, I personally in these days have experienced a wake-up call and changes in my heart that I hope will stay with me the rest of my life. Most importantly, in these days I have grown closer to God. I finally get it. I've learned that I cannot control everything that happens in my life. And I certainly cannot control the outcome of issues that come with the viruses other than doing my part to follow guidelines and 
to try to keep my family and myself safe. But with the news surrounding us every day on COVID-19, my anxiety and my worry for the future for my children and grandchildren was over the top, and I could feel myself starting to panic. But then one day, I remembered the promise that God made in Psalm 46, verses 1 and 2. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. God made us. And in spite of ourselves, he loved us so much that he gave his only son, so that through faith we can spend eternity with him, said Mrs. Seabolt. He will never leave us, and we need him more than ever. She said, I finally get it. What a wake-up call. Well, that's a simple story, but that is exactly how it happens, how it works for you and me. Something goes wrong, and we react with worry, alarm, anxiety concern, panic, confusion. But we use that incident as an occasion to open our Bibles and search out the very promise God has for us. Like Psalm 46, verses 1 and 2, there are hundreds and thousands of promises in the Bible. And so we find one. And then, ladies and gentlemen, we toss our anchor upward And we snag it on that promise and on the one who is guaranteed it with an oath. And even if the waters are choppy, we are safe and secure from all alarm. We are stabilized. We are anchored to the rock. We have fled to Jesus for refuge from the billows of life. And so the writer of Hebrews says, We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and steadfast. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Jesus has already entered there on our behalf as a forerunner. You see, after Jesus died to provide what God had promised for us, and after he rose again, he ascended to heaven and he resumed his place in God's great temple of New Jerusalem. And so we take the anchor of our faith, and we swing it around a couple of times, and we send it flying upward, and it snags on the rock of Jesus and provides a lifeline and a lifetime of steady hope and constant joy for the child of God. I want to tell you with all of my heart, God's book, His covenant, His oath, His excellent word is our foundation of faith, and Jesus is our refuge. I hope that He is yours, and if not, I urge you to trust Him today as your Lord and as your Savior. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, you who unto Jesus for refuge have fled? Well, thanks for listening to this podcast. I hope it's been a blessing to you. It was produced by Joshua Rowe and Clearly Media. Edited by Elijah Rowe. Music 
by Jeff Bennett. You can learn more about him at jeffbennettmusic.com. And for more information and resources, please visit my website at robertjmorgan.com. And to subscribe to this weekly ministry, visit robertjmorgan.com slash podcast. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you this week. And thank you for listening.